welcome to the 15-Minute Chronic Pain Experience Podcast. I am your host, Dina Tropolis, and I am the head pain coach, educator, and chief curator at Pain to Possibilities, where we have been transforming pain experiences since 2018. In today's episode, we're going to hear about our guest's experience with medical trauma, and how she helps her clients navigate their way through medical trauma as well. I'd love to introduce you to our guest, Stephanie Gilson. Stephanie is a registered therapeutic counselor located in Vancouver, British Columbia, and works with clients on self-esteem, confidence, healthy boundary setting, and how to speak up and advocate for themselves. She also has a personal lived experience with medical trauma and specializes in helping clients with their own experience of medical trauma. There are a couple of things you should know before we dive into this episode. First off, we'll be talking about some tough subjects, such as loss of a child's life, grief, and neglect. So if you find these topics to be triggering, please feel free to turn off this podcast at any time. And even though this podcast is titled the 15-minute chronic pain experience, eh, we sometimes go over that time frame, especially when we're driving headfirst into a topic that requires a little more care and attention. So let's get into it. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story today to our listeners. I know there will be people who will connect deeply with your story, and I appreciate how much courage it takes to share this with others. So not only have you worked through trauma on your own, but you're also a certified counselor and help others work through their trauma and chronic pain issues. This is exactly why I needed to connect with you as I and our listeners need to know your story how you are working through it, and as a result, how you are helping others. So when we first met, you graciously shared your story with me. And even though it wasn't considered procedural trauma or trauma induced by a procedure gone wrong, you experienced something a little different. So can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, firstly, thank you for having me and allowing me to share my story because it is a little bit different. And um, it is really long and convoluted. I'm 46 this year and it's been going on really for 42 years. So basically the short version is when I was four, my brother passed away and he passed away from a brain aneurysm at 10 days old. And my parents were kind of told, they were told that he was lethargic and floppy, but really the cause of death was put on the aneurysm. Hmm. And then, so fast forward another four years, my mom and dad decide, okay, we're going to try to have another baby again. And they went to the geneticist because at that point we were in contact with, with uh, children's hospital in Vancouver and they were told, no, everything's fine. Go ahead. Like, so my mom gets pregnant. I'm nine at this time and they have another boy. She went into premature labor. I think he was, I tried to find out, but from what I remember, he was about seven and a half months. So quite a bit premature. And immediately again, they called him floppy. Mm. And so they didn't really know what was happening. And he was put in the NICU. He was in an incubator. 
And basically for the next six months, that's where he lived. He had no voluntary muscle movement on his own. So they performed a tracheotomy. Mm-hmm. And basically my parents lived at the hospital. Right. And so I knew bits and pieces of what was going on because when they would come home, I would hear them talking. And of course they did talk to me and they were quite open about what was going on. What is important about the story is that when we think about medical trauma, we often think about procedure going wrong. And in your case, it seems to be a little different. Now, it sounds like when, the, when we spoke about this the first time, that there was more to the story in the sense that you weren't being told the complete truth. Yeah, so it was after my brother passed in September of 1985 mm-hmm. that they actually came up with a diagnosis for both of my brothers. It's a very rare genetic disorder called myotubular myopathy. And because it was so rare at the time being with my first brother, it was like 1980. So it was early 1980. So, uh, and then later in 1985, like we didn't have DNA testing. We didn't have genetic testing. It was all very archaic. And how we found out, of course, I've only heard the story from my mom because I was 10 by the time my brother died, but my mom tells the story of them being pulled into a boardroom with the director of the hospital, our genetic counselor, Mm -hmm. and a team of hospital lawyers. And in passing... I believe it was the chief of the hospital and I could be wrong about that information, but somebody higher up said to my mom, why did you do this? We knew this would happen again. And part of that too, I feel really uh, funky saying this, Mm -hmm. but they were also offered another baby. Mm. And I, you know, a baby up for adoption, but they they were basically, we can have a baby for you tomorrow. Oh my goodness. So to me, that also implies we effed up. Yeah. And I remember knowing this story a long time. Like this isn't something I found out last year or when I was 40 or when I was 35. I've known this for a long time. I've known this piece of of the story for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of anger I still hold. I still have to deal with the geneticist at the hospital at children's hospital, because if I ever did have a kid, I would have had to deal with them. If I want to get, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it later, but like, I actually carry the disease as well. I found out like years and years later. Um, so if I want to deal with anything regarding that, I have to deal with them. And it angers me because of that lying and that hiding and the sneakiness about it all. Right. And I think this is probably the biggest reason why I was really excited to talk to you about today, beyond the incredible story that you have to tell, is that this is such a common theme, uh, that there is there is either miscommunication oftentimes, or there is, of course, that there is wrongdoing. Now, I'm, I'm not here by any means to bash our current medical model, but what I think it does showcase is that... Um, you know, we, we have some flaws in the system. Our system is really good. And I say this over and over again, is really good at the acute care, but when it comes to the chronic pain or chronic illness, it is flawed. And we do have, as you know, all too well, some things to work through. Now, speaking of working through, um, 
you've had a long time to be working through these issues, especially the trauma that you've experienced as a result. Now, you also mentioned when we had our first conversation that some of the trauma that you experienced above and beyond what the frustration and the anger around essentially not hearing the truth and knowing that there was some shady situations going on, that there was more to it as well, just as far as how you felt in your relationship with your parents. Yeah, it was really hard. I was nine, 10 years old and my mom will admit this. We've talked about this openly, but I was abandoned. Mm -hmm. I was emotionally abandoned. I was physically abandoned because I, they were at the hospital every day. I'd come home and I had a babysitter or I'd have to go to my next door neighbor's house, which is a whole nother story in itself, (laughs) which we won't get into today. But uh, basically I was left alone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking back at 46 years old, I understand why you have a child that's dying in the hospital or you have a fine child at home. Who are you going to be with? I get it now. But as a nine, 10 year old, that was really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. And when I was three weeks before my brother passed, I was sent to my aunt's house and my aunt's house was chaotic. Whereas my house was fun. And like, we, we had these grief experiences, right. With, especially with my first brother and we were going through this hard time now, but my aunt's house was completely different. And I felt really alone there. And I had to start school that year mm. in a different city. And it was only for a week and a half that I was, or maybe two weeks at most that I was at that new school. But within those two weeks, I was bullied. I was, I was made fun of. I, was the new kid. And then I had to go back to my school and they're like, Oh, how come you didn't start? And I'm like, well, now I'm the weird kid with the dead brother. Like Mm -hmm. it just left me in this place of feeling really, really alone. Right. And so with that heaviness, obviously as a kid, were you aware then or aware now of how your body responded to that trauma? I was not aware then at all. I am aware now. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I don't know that I've actually gotten to the middle of the onion on that, but I've gotten pretty far into the layers of the onion. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a project, like it's a process. I don't think we'll ever get to that middle, right. but each layer has a new, uh, new, new experience to it. And uh, yes, you know, at the time, I think I really shut down. I really, I remember crying a lot in my bed at night. Mm-hmm. And my mom would come in, but I cried alone a lot. Mm-hmm. And she would, she would hear me and come in, like I say, but, but I was alone a lot. Mm-hmm. And then nobody at school had this experience. Like I had nobody to turn to. Um, and it was the eighties. My parents did say they sent me to counselors, but that I, re- like, I refused to go. Right. So they didn't push it. And it's hard to, when you're young, you don't necessarily understand why or how it's going to be a value at whatsoever. Right. So that's normal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, throughout the years, I growing up, it wasn't until I hit 17 that I really was like, oh crap, I'm a sister. Mm. I'm not an only child. I've been an only child my whole life. I tell people that I'm only, only child, but like, also I have brothers. And so it was when I was 17 that I kind of grappled with the grief and I really let it sink in that this was a thing, um, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. And then when I was 18, I graduated high school. 
and I fell into a huge depression for about 10 years Mm. where basically I went to work, came home and ate. Mm. And that's how my body responded to it was um, eating disorders run in my family, long story there, Mm -hmm. but my go-to was food. And in a year I gained 80 pounds. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's how my body dealt with the pain. Right. Coping. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I really believe that of course, my specialty is more the the chronic pain side, as I know we'll get into that as well, because I know that that's how you also help your your community. But there's such an overlap, isn't there, when it comes to, I think we're really, we're, we're on a cusp of something big here, which I love. Uh, when it comes to chronic illness in general, we're now learning that we have to see the bigger picture. We have to see yeah. person as a whole, right? And that mental health piece is just so big. And there is some great work that's going on. But again, part of the reason I love your stories because I'm guessing, and we'll get there, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if perhaps part of the reason, or maybe we'll address it now. Do you believe that what you have chosen as a career is partially because of your life lived experience? Yeah, for sure. I've always wanted to be like, you asked me when I was 10, what I wanted to be when I grew up, it was a teacher or a psychologist. Mm. Yeah. It's just always been a thing. I think in that experience of being abandoned by my parents, you know, I cooked, I cleaned, I took care of them. Mm-hmm. At the memorial we had for my brother when I was 10, I remember holding both their hands and I was in the middle of them and I just stood there stoically or I sat there stoically mm-hmm. while they were crying. And that, that's like, I took that on right. as I will be the rock then. Yeah. So it makes sense that I chose this career. <laughs> Right. It's so interesting. I, I'm so thankful that we re- we connected because we do have so much in common. And one of those things is I, my husband's story is similar somewhat to yours in the sense that he's the oldest sibling and had to come from a messy, messy divorce and had to be the rock, had to be the, the grown up at 12. Right. And it's just yeah. amazing. Even in the, our fifties, and I hate to say that out loud, but in our fifties, <laughs> you know, we are addressing still, those, those layers, like you said, so eloquently in the, in the, in the onion. And so, so it excites me that this is something that you're doing. Obviously you knew when you were younger that you were an empath and you were heart centered and this is what you want to do. You want to help people, but because you have this story, I think you just have that much more to give to those who are coming to you with chronic pain. And so I, I don't want to jump ahead because I am excited to kind of find out, you know, the other side of the story too, around how you help people, but is there anything that you kind of wish you knew then, or even sort of into your older teen years that you knew now, as far as getting through this the mental health part of your experience? Oh, there's so many things, yeah, <laughs> but definitely I think the biggest thing is that your feelings matter about this too. It's really, really, really strange because one of the things when I would tell my story, which I didn't really talk about much until in my forties, the first thing out of anybody's mouth was almost exclusively, oh my God, your poor parents. Mm. And so there was this real feeling of being like, especially with the being abandoned, like this unseen, I'm unheard, I don't matter in all of this. Mm. 
their grief and pain is way more important than my grief and pain. Oh. And it wasn't until I owned my truth about my story, people have stopped saying that to me. Mm-hmm. It's really bizarre. But it's like the energy around my story has changed. Mm-hmm. And so I wish I knew that then. I wish I was had the ability to and the skills to own it back then. Right. No, that's a great perspective because I think sometimes it is perspective and we're not often given that. And you're right. When it comes to the whole mental health piece as a society, we have a long way to go to really truly Mm -hmm. understand it. We are not in a trauma informed society by any stretch of the imagination. And so there is some, some hope. I think, again, like I mentioned, I feel like we're on the cusp of so much more. I feel like there's some great work being done. I know and you likely know this as well, Dr. Gabor Matei, he's our Canadian uh, guy, right, for all things trauma, and uh, he's doing some incredible work. I mentioned that just because for our listeners who might be intrigued to know more, he's got lots of great books, one of which that I love is called When the Body Says No. Yes, thumbs up from Stephanie. I love it. Now, Stephanie, when you do work with people who have lived through trauma, and of course, trauma comes in many, many forms, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any, any sort of top things that you think are really helpful for those people who have lived through trauma to understand? Yeah. A couple things. It wasn't until, you know, feeling like this abandonment for my parents wasn't an isolated thing. We also felt abandoned by the medical system. And we also felt a mm. kind of this sense of like aloneness in the, it's so rare. And what ended up happening was after I graduated, prior to that, we had found that there's this community, basically a football player's son was born with this. Uh, He he was Dallas Cowboys football player. So then all of a sudden, all of this money went into figuring this disease out. Mm -hmm. And this community was born. And my mom and I, three weeks after I graduated, went to our first conference for this disease. Mm -hmm. And it was like feeling family and being seen and feeling connected and not alone anymore. Mm. And, you know, as much as I disagree, a lot of them politically or religiously, they are people that understand us in a way that nobody else can. So, you know, that's one of my biggest tips is finding a community Mm -hmm. where you are you may not have the same lived experience or the same political views or the same ideologies or the same anything, but they can understand you in a way that nobody else on this planet can. Right. So that's one of my big things is that community literally changed my mom and I's relationship. It changed my mom and I's relationship to my brothers. We talk about them way more now. Mm. A massive difference, community. sorry, this is going back a little bit in the conversation and I meant to acknowledge it earlier, but I loved your perspective shift from, I am an only child to know I'm a sister. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how that helped you to, as part of your healing. Totally. That that's exactly a perfect segue. Cause that's exactly what I was going to say next was owning the experience. Mm. And one of the things I do talk to my clients about is 
in society, we have this view of, I am happy right now. Mm -hmm. That is all I feel is happy. Or I am depressed or have depressive feelings. I don't like depressed. I have depressive feelings right now. Mm. And that's the experience. But really, two things can be true. I am an only child and I am a sister. Right. I can be happy and I can have depressive feelings. We, we have this exclusion in our society. And I really talk to my clients about two things can be true at the same time. Right. Beautiful. If I could reach out and hug you, like we're provinces <laughs> away, but that is fantastic. I do not mean to bash our current medical model. It really has its place. But what we have done is we really reduce everything, the symptoms, the cause, all that stuff, to sort of one or two things. And like you said, we are so complex. And so there often are, and I think it's a beautiful thing, is to have more than one thing at once. And so when it comes to chronic pain, chronic illness, appreciating the full spectrum of it, the whole experience of it pulls us away from just that, that singular view. And I think, thank you for saying that. I think it's, that's my long way of saying you articulated it perfectly. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. You helped me out on that one, but um. Sorry, did you have any other points? I know we you had two really great nuggets there for our listeners. Was there anything else that you felt have helped your, your uh, clientele? For my clients, biggest things to know is trauma can't be talked through. So talk therapy is great for, you know, I'm having a fight with my husband and I don't know what to do. Okay, let's talk about it. Let's open that up. Let's get in there. But trauma affects the body. And like you said, Gabor Mate, like that's one of the books I have listed here, you know, talks about trauma stored in ourselves and you can't talk your way out of that. And as scary as it sounds, trauma needs to be healed by feeling it. Right. And we need to create the new experience. And by creating that new experience, we own our story, which then, you know, allows us to feel all of the feelings about it and, and live in our truth about owning our story. Right. And when we can feel it and we're met by a therapist that's, that's supportive or even a family member or a trusted loved one, our nervous system creates a new experience. And that's how we heal the trauma from within. So one of the books, or a couple of books, I, I do recommend the Gabarmete one, um, but also the body keeps the score. Yes. And the body remembers. Yes. Yeah. I endorse all of those. Fantastic choice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's so true. And I think I'm really glad you brought up the whole, the whole nervous system, because when we talk about chronic pain, that is one piece that is, um, often missed when it comes to recovery. And I, yes, I am saying recovery is, and again, it's something that's not addressed by our physicians because they just don't have the time and they simply just don't have the training. And so it is absolutely, I mean, chronic pain is 100% of the time, emotional and physical. And so for it to reveal itself in the body is, uh, is exactly right. And so thank you for bringing that up. It is a tough one to wrap your head around though. I don't know if you find this with the people that you work with is that there is this stigma. It's a really frustrating one. There's this belief that it's all in their head, right? 
partly because they'll say, well, it's your brain's perception of pain. Well, yes, your brain is involved. It is not all on your head. Your pain is real, but it's a matter of, you know, we have to sort of, we have to work with that. Those pain pathways are a little flawed. So we have some work to do. And just like you said, you can't talk your way through it. You have to work through it. You have to walk through it. You have to feel that pain. Absolutely. And one of the things that I found fascinating in learning about the pain cycle that we don't think about, it was mind blowing to me. Pain can also be a way to disassociate. We often think of disassociation as checking out tunnel vision, your body freezes, all of these things, your mind goes away, you black out these kinds of things, but pain can also be a way to disassociate. And I've experienced that personally. Because if I'm in pain, physical pain, it's my body's protection mechanism because then I don't have to feel all those nasty feelings of like feeling uh, worthless or alone or grief or pain, like emotional pain. Mm -hmm. Now I'm just going to focus on the physical pain. And this isn't something we consciously choose. Right. It's totally our body's protection mechanism. Mm -hmm. So to understand that about pain, I think is really important because understanding that that in the pain cycle Mm -hmm. can help if we can track it in the pain cycle, like together, and we can pinpoint where that disassociation starts to occur. That's where the change can happen. Mm. And it sounds way easier than it is. It's a really difficult process to pinpoint, Um, but that is where the change will occur. Beautiful. So well said. You did also mention earlier, and I'm, uh, I love that you brought it up, was one of your great points was about community. And I'm <sighs> thankful you brought that up because that is, for me, the most exciting piece of all of this is that, as corny as it sounds, we are stronger together. We are better together. You know, someone who lives the same experience or slightly different again, like you said, may share different opinions, but has a common shared experience is really important. And I keep going back to this example, but when it comes to the AA model, they did some research recently to sort of understand, okay, why is it that they get so much success over the years, more so than any other program? And they boil it down to belief in the AA model. And I'm only semi-familiar with it, but it seems like Um, they go deep into faith, or at least that's part of it. And so, which is great. On the bigger picture, it's that belief in self. And when you're in a community, that belief becomes stronger in yourself, that sort of self-efficacy that yes, you are capable. And if someone else believes in you, you're going to believe in yourself just that little bit more. So you're right. Community is such a big piece. Yeah. And the, the interesting little nugget that I often leave with clients is, uh, you know, you can't recognize confidence or capability in another person unless it lives within yourself. You actually wouldn't know what it looks like. So by recognizing capability or confidence or self-worth in somebody else, it actually on some level is in you. Oh, lovely. When we were talking earlier, Stephanie, you mentioned about how, you know, you were young and so you had to really navigate your way around this essentially on your own. And so that ties in beautifully to, you know, our chronic pain community in the sense that we have to really become our own self-advocates 
just as you had to become your own self-advocate. So how do you use the self-advocacy piece, uh, not only for yourself, but also for, for your community? It's really interesting because until I was 28 and DNA testing was really kind of taking off, um, genetic testing, I didn't know that I had this as well. And when they did the carrier study, it's kind of a story, but basically my cousin wanted to have a child and was concerned that she would also carry this. So I had to go through the genetic testing and I found out I carry this. Okay. I already at that point was 28. I probably wasn't going to have kids anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of knew that growing up, but fast forward to when we were at that medical conference um, and found our community there was all these carrier studies Mm. and my mom and I were like, well, that's weird. Like, why are they studying the carriers? Carriers manifest symptoms. We didn't know this. And they're, they're doing this uh, slideshow. And on this slideshow is my whole freaking life explained. (laughs) And it's like stats of, of women that carry this disease and it's um, constant falling. Mm. Uh, lung issues. And I have asthma. I, and, and even the doctors are like, your asthma symptoms are way worse than your actual asthma. Like your case is mild. So we don't understand why you have such bad symptoms. Mm. Even I had braces because my, my, my palate on my mouth was too high. So they had to, but that's one of the symptoms. Mm. Lethargy because your muscles don't work as well as they should. Right. And every time I have a new doctor, I have to tell them what myotubular myopathy is. I educate the doctor. So some doctors have said, you know, I go in with an issue and some doctors have said, we'll just lose weight. 80% of carriers of this disease are overweight. Mm. 80%. Yes, I have an eating disorder, but either way, my body's working against me in this. And so I have to constantly advocate for myself of, no, my problem is bigger than you think it is. Right. Isn't a mild case of asthma. This is, I have asthma and myotubular myopathy. Right. And you, you hit on two really important things there. I think I heard a collective sigh from our listeners when you said lose weight, because how many Mm -hmm. times are people going to see their doctors, they're just trying to get in, you know, they have a limited time and they are Mm -hmm. trying to find out things. And the doctors say, well, just lose weight. And that does nothing to help them move forward. And so unfortunately you experience the same thing. Yes. And then also the whole self-advocacy piece when it comes to the physicians, again, there's going to be some fantastic doctors who have a little bit more time who absolutely have that ability to empathize and want to listen because listening is such a huge skill when it comes to helping. But I think in your situation, the fact that you had a name to be able to explain to them uh, was really helpful. Uh, There's obviously so many people in our community who just don't have that, who are constantly trying to find that diagnosis and they're just not getting it. Anyway, I'm getting away from this conversation, so I apologize. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think the whole self-advocacy is absolutely really important. We, our community needs to be their own self-advocate and you are such a great example of that. Yeah. It's really hard. Sometimes it's really frustrating. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I called my mom crying just a few weeks ago because I'm dealing with sinus issues from the myotibular neuropathy. And the doctor's like, well, we don't see anything. And I called her crying and I'm like, why can't it just be, I have an issue. I go to the doctor and they say, yes, you have this here, take this. Right. It's never that it's far more complicated and it's really disheartening sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, do you, with being your own self-advocate, have you found ways to deal with those above and beyond what your physicians might be offering to you? Are you have, or have you had to find your own self-care management style? Yeah. I really have. I have to do what feels good for my body in exercise in, can I go to that event because maybe I'm going to be too tired or, cause that's one of my things is, is the constant exhaustion is part of the, the disease as well. So am I going to have enough self-care time in my life to attend the thing that I want to attend or attend the event that I want to attend? So it's this fine balance of understanding my capability and my brain wants to do way more than I think that I can sometimes. Right. right. That is very much the story of our chronic pain community. It's that wanting to do more, but the body saying no. Mm-hmm. And like you said, being a really good listener to that and understanding when it's time to pause and, and distract and when it's time to, to go on. So you sounds like you've been really working through that on your own. It, it's hard. Sometimes the, the self, uh, judgment is really hard there. Right. For sure. Yeah. Which is a whole other podcast, right? Totally. <laughs> we'll have to have you back on at least another awesome. six hours. <laughs> well, thank you, Stephanie. I know that there are many people out there who are going, yes, finally, someone who understands what I'm trying to say. So thank you. Really. Thank you for being here and for willing to share your story, for willing to share your expertise. And, um, For our listeners, please be sure to leave a comment on this podcast and to share with those who you feel would connect with Stephanie's story. Also, don't forget to subscribe to get notification of our newest episodes. Thank you so much for listening and have a fantastic day.